I'd love us to give a great um, round of applause to Vic joining us again. Vic, stand up. Give it up. And I will solve this. Don't worry. Okay, I'll fix that just now. Uh, there we go. So those of you who are here for our second week, uh, Vic uh, and Tanya, the Stander family and the kids were here from Canada. So for those of you who don't know or haven't met uh, Vic before, South African, um, born and bred, Joe Burgers. Yeah. Yep, there we go. And uh, there you go, I'll do that. So we, we pray for great courage for you being born in Joburg, I'm joking. Uh, and then uh, part of church life, and they really felt God's call to head across and uh, join a church in Canada. And I've been there for how many years? Uh, almost nine. Almost nine years. Uh, and Canada being a very difficult place to be doing church. And so we're just so grateful. Thank you, Vic Rand, the comrades, last Sunday. And then uh, came up. Yes, exactly. Give it up. Um, and it's just, uh, it's so cool having friends and partnerships from across the globe where we really feel we're family. And that's what you are to us. And so we're just so grateful. So Jesus, would you uh, use Vic today? Use him powerfully amongst us. Our, our hearts are open. Uh, would you open our spiritual eyes? Wherever we are in the journey of faith, would we be open to what you would say to us through him? Amen. Amen. Thanks so much, bud. Great to be with you again. Just as we were singing, you know, behold the Son of God, um, that word behold actually beheld me. <laughs> and I was thinking about the other terms in the scriptures when, uh, you know, Paul and some of the others write to churches and to people and he calls them beloved. And so just, I want to set the tone for the message today. I want you to think of the term behold and beloved. And um, to behold something actually means to be held by the thing you're beholding. That's really Behold, it's like let the majesty, the grandeur of what you see captivate you, get your, get your attention. That's what it, when the scripture says behold, it's like it's put everything down and look and listen to this one thing. I want to ask you to, to allow God to hold you, to, to, to be held. Let him hold you, be held. Beloved is the same thing. When you're called a beloved by God, he's actually saying, let me love you. Be loved, beloved. That's what it means. And so often we resist God. We aren't beheld by Him. We don't let Him hold us. And we aren't loved by Him. We're not letting Him love us. So today as we look at Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, I want you to behold the Son of God, Jesus. I want you to be loved by the Son of God, Jesus. Is that okay? Just to set the tone for what we are going to be reading and learning today. Okay, don't behold that guy. He's not as great as Jesus. So I'm going to read from Mark chapter 4. I think, oh, he's, he trapped himself over there. Maybe it is worth watching just a little bit. <laughs> but we are, um, we are going to be reading out of the Gospel of Mark, the end of chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, do turn there. I actually didn't, I forgot to put the verses up on the screen other than the references. So get out your old school Bibles. If you have a phone, find this at uh, the end of chapter 4 from verse 35. Um, but most of chapter 4 is actually Jesus teaching, mostly in parables. The beginning of chapter 4, he gets in a boat and he preaches from the shore to a crowd and then eventually he kind of whittles it down to just speaking to his disciples. But he uses parables and now we are going to read about him moving from parables to real practical lessons with his disciples. So it's a little bit of a school trip that Jesus is taking his disciples on, right? They're not getting into a yellow bus, they're actually getting into a boat, okay? And, uh, and, and it turns out to be the 
mix of the perfect storm and sort of the exorcist. Both of those things are happening. The, a perfect storm and, and a possessed man. So we're going to break the sermon up really into two sections, but you'll see the two stories tied together quite wonderfully. So if you have your Bibles open, let's read together verse 35. We'll kick it off in Mark chapter 4. And this is now a new addition to my preaching it's happened this year, friends. It's, it's real. It's getting real. Age is getting real. So on that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and, the, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And said to one, one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is God's word. I've been prayed for already, so I'm just going to get going. Is that okay? So Jesus basically asks his disciples, you know, could you just sell my pulpit somewhere else? That's basically what's happening over here. And the scene was calm enough for Jesus to be in that boat and to teach the disciples in the beginning of chapter 4. But oh my, oh my, how things have changed right now. And, you know, the Sea of Galilee is pretty small, okay? It's about 1% of Lake Ontario. I live right on Lake Ontario in Canada. It's one of the great, great lakes. And in terms of, com you know, comparing size, to, uh, you know, lake to lake, it's about 1% the size. So it's very easy to stir up these waters. You, know, you have the high mountains, Okay, around the Sea of Galilee, and then you've, of course, the warm air from the sea rises up, the cold air comes down from the mount mountains, and very quickly, this little pond can turn into a scary, stormy scenario. And so, small boats often sank quite easily if they were caught off guard by these storms. And this must have been a pretty big storm because the disciples actually feared their lives. This is what they were saying to Jesus Don't you care? We're going to perish, we're going to die. And so, the storm takes place, and what's fascinating, point number one, is Jesus crashes. He, ha he sleeps. He has a nice, nice nap. Enough to sleep, you know, he's so exhausted, first of all, from all his ministry, and this again is this amazing tension that we see that God became flesh. I love how young life uh, refers to it. It's God in the bod. God in the bod. Like, he is fully God, because we know he calmed the storm, but he's also fully human. He's exhausted. He's so tired that he's napping, sleeping through a, a deadly storm. And you might think, oh, that's a little far-fetched. Well, let me tell you a few stories. I've had jet lag before. I have slept through multiple alarms. Important meetings I needed to be at, they weren't that important to my body. It slept through the alarms. It slept through the knocking and the pounding on the door. We, we rented a room out in our room once, uh, in our house, as an Airbnb. It was a little business we had on the side. And the one time we got home, we knew the guests would have checked out already. We made a big commotion. I've got four kids, so when we come into the house, it's like a freight train. 
All right, in Canada, you have to kick off your shoes before you get into the house, so it's a lot of commotion. And thought we thought, okay, let's just go into the room and just start cleaning up. We walked into the room, and something was strange because there were limbs hanging out of the bed, and there were, you know, people still in the room sleeping. And we realized, oh, and we closed the door. They didn't wake up for hours after that. They were so zonked, so jet-lagged. And so I can imagine that if you really are exhausted, that you could sleep through a commotion. I don't think it's far-fetched. And we see here Jesus being God in the flesh takes, takes a rest. It's a little, little side show for us here. Like rest when you're tired. I think it's a good thing. But more than that, clearly Jesus is not worried. He's sleeping because he's not worried. He's living actually out one of the parables he was teaching just a few verses before. Verse 26 to 29, he told the parable of the growing seed. And it's the story where it just says the farmer, many of you can relate to this. He plants the seed and he goes to bed and he sleeps because he, he gets it. He, there's nothing more he can do. He can water, he can weed, but then he must go to sleep because God is the one that brings the growth. And Jesus knows he's sleeping because he knows his life is not going to end at the bottom of the Lake Galilee. His life's going to end on top of a cross on Calvary. He's quite confident that he's on a mission and it's going to come to completion. So that's the first thing we see here. The second thing we see is that Jesus, in fact, does care, even though the disciples says, do you not care? Point number two. It's a great question they ask. Don't you care? But it's also a dumb question, people. Okay? If you've read Mark 1, 2, and 3, and 4 up until now, you'll realize this is not a question they should be asking. This is Jesus who came down from heaven to earth to save those who are perishing. Of course he cares. And what happens often in our lives too, just like with the disciples, is that the wind and the waves around us, maybe the turmoil, the troubles, the hardships we find ourselves, causes us to doubt God's goodness like they doubted God's goodness. God, don't you care? Don't you care about my well-being? We forget his identity when the wind and the waves swirl and crash around us. And the disciples were in need of a reminder, just like you and I are often in need of a reminder. And oh my goodness, a reminder of who Jesus was, was about to, to come. As they waking him up, spitting out bad theology, don't you care, he's going to quickly set the record straight. And so the third point is he calms the storm. Jesus calms the storm. He addresses the wind in the waves amazingly in the same way as we saw in the previous chapters that he addresses demons. Just a quick word, just a little word, two simple words, peace, be still, Utter simplicity, and the storm obeys him. He doesn't roll up his sleeves. He doesn't raise his hands like Gandalf and starts throwing out incantations, you know, and all sorts of rhymes and call on a higher power. No, he just says, shush, footsack, be still, calm. And there is peace, instant calmness. The sea obeys him just like a compliant child, or at least how a compliant child should obey us, right? Hey, it's just amazing. It's just amazing. And Jesus, you know, he created the world with simple commands. As we know in Genesis 1, let there be light. And there was light. And the same Jesus speaks out just simple commands and creation obeys him. Just like that, he calms the storm. And then next point we see then, he calls the disciples out. Now that he's calmed the storm, he turns to his not-so-calm disciples. And he calls them out.
Testing. Ah, oh, look, it's here. Well, it's probably going to die again. It's probably die again. Take that one. It's fine. One, two. Where I come from, red is bad. All right, well, I can't run to the end of the stage anymore, so stationary Vic for you. All right. So he calls out the condition of their faith in this moment. He's saying, you guys have fair weather faith. It's only good when the sun's shining. But when it's stormy, where is your faith? It's no faith at all if your faith disappears as soon as trouble comes. Because, friends, if Jesus says, let's go to the other side, we should rest assured that actually we're as good as there. If Jesus calls us, he said to them, okay, get in the, let's go to the other side. Even though it was stormy, they should have had faith. And, hey, he wouldn't, he wouldn't lead us into some, some thing that we wouldn't be able to get out of. If he said, let's go, we're as good as there. It should be that case. Why? Because of who Jesus is. He is God in the flesh. And so Jesus actually cures their fear. That's the last thing here. He cures their fear. Because it's amazing. These disciples now, we read, they move from being afraid to Jesus calming the storm. And then it says, and then they were terrified. <laughs> it's fascinating. They're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. They were asking, who is this? They were realizing that this incredible teacher is, in fact, God himself in the flesh. You know, ancient cultures really did believe, if, even if they weren't part of the Jewish nation, the pagans believed that the only one who could control the elements, the, the wind and the waves, would be no one else other, or no one other than God. And even in the Old Testament, the Jews, you know, in Psalm 107, it speaks about God being the storm tamer, the one that calms it. And so here, again, is Jesus. He's not calling on a higher authority. He's not calling on, on someone bigger and higher than himself. He himself is the authority by which he calms the storm. He simply says, be still, and it obeys him. The storm obeys him. And so clearly, they realize, well, Jesus here is bigger and stronger than the storm. But they had a bad premise. That's why they said, Lord, don't you care? They, they had, underneath, they had a bit of faithlessness. Because, you know, storms don't love you. They don't care. The nature, you know, nature will wear all of us down eventually. Eventually, nature will get its way with us. And... And nature is indifferent in that sense to us. But Jesus is not like that. He's not like that. And it's fascinating that Jesus, from what we can read here, actually only calmed the storm because they woke him up. Okay, Because he said, we're going to go to the other side regardless of what we'll meet along the way. But they woke him, as I said, with the wrong premise because they asked whether he cared or not. If you love us, Lord, then why the storm, basically, is what they were saying. And this is really what I think every Christian experiences in their life often is when it gets a bit stormy around us everyone who's ever had lived a life of faith would have asked the same question god are you asleep god are you indifferent to what's happening in my life don't you care and it's amazing because jesus response was not yeah yeah i can totally see i can totally see how you came to that conclusion it's not like when they woke Jesus up, he goes, you know what, guys, now that I think about it, you're right. It looked like I didn't care. It's amazing what Jesus said. He's like, actually, I cannot see why you're afraid. That was his response. And that should, that's how we should, we should be confronted and called out by Jesus, too, when we doubt the goodness of God in the midst of storms. We shouldn't ask for some sort of kind of empathy from the Lord where he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We should actually hear God going, I don't get it. I'm still God. 
I'm still God. What's going on here? He calls them out. Why? Because God is great. Yes, he showed them. He can calm the storms. But he wanted them first to understand that he's also good, that he would get them through a storm if he didn't calm it. That's, that's what he wanted them to know. Because, yeah, he is all-powerful. He's almighty. He can calm that storm. But he's also all-loving and all-wise. And he will not lead you into something that he won't sustain you through and give you the grace for. If you are only at the mercy of a storm, my friends, you are in trouble. But you, if you are at the mercy of God, then you're in tune. Then you're in tune. You're in, if, if God has led you to where you're at right now, you can trust him. But if there's no God and it's just a storm, I can understand your panic. But if we're in the will of the Lord, he said, let us go. They were doing what he asked them to do. I, I believe they were fine. And Jesus clearly, when he's like, what's going on here? He also believed that they were fine. So in Mark's account here, it's fascinating. The language used around the storm is actually very similar to an Old Testament account, the account of Jonah. The descriptions are so, so similar. You know, Jonah was asleep in the boat, if you know the story of Jonah. And the sailors woke them up saying, what's going on here? And Jonah said, well, you know, we're all going to die unless you throw me over, okay? And there was this miraculous intervention. And it says that the sailors were terrified after the calming of the storm as well, just like we see in this, in this New Testament account. But there's only one difference. Of course, Jonah was thrown overboard, and in this case, Jesus is still in the boat. But let's just stop for a moment and think about the life of Jesus. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, one greater than Jonah is here. And he was referring to himself. One greater than Jonah is here. Because on the cross, we know that Jesus was actually thrown into the mother of all storms on that cross. He, in fact, was thrown overboard. The waves of sin and death were crashing upon Jesus to the extent that it did sink him down into the tomb. He did, in fact, die so that you and I could live. And only after he was dead did he was, was he raised to life again three days later. That's why he says the sign of Jonah will be given to people. Three days later, he busted out of that grave, showing us that actually he did endure the storm completely so that you and I wouldn't have to sink. He sunk in our place. He sunk into that tomb so that you and I would not be able to say that death is our final destination. Eternal life is ours now. It's ours now. So friends, before we move on to the next story, I want to say to you, if Jesus did not abandon you and I in the ultimate storm of God's wrath upon our sin, that he was there, he took the blows, he took the wind, he took the waves. He will not abandon you in the tiny storm that you are going through right now. Do, you, do not be of little faith as the disciples were. He's got you. He loves you. He's capable to calm it, and he's capable to calm you if he doesn't calm the storm. Keep calm and carry on. Maybe that's my final point. I should put that on the slide. Okay, so let's keep going. Is that okay? Let's read Mark chapter 5, verse 1 to 20 now. Let's look at the possessed man. Verse 1, chapter 5, Gospel of Mark. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Help me here. That one. That one. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat... Immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. 
For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And, he, and, and when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What's your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. Maybe I should change my voice there. My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what was this that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is God's word. It says here, you know, Jesus went to the other side. And this really meant what it sounds like, the other side. I remember I was in South Africa once in Paul visiting my parents-in-law. And I met some person and I asked them where they're from. And they said, Anakant van die Berghof, you know. It's like those people on the other side of the mountain, you know, those other side of the lake, you know. The people we don't hang out with, okay. It really was like that. It was foreign soil to this little Jewish group of men. It truly was unfamiliar territory. It was outside of the little enclave. Jews were forbidden to eat pork, right? What do we hear yet? 2,000 pigs on a, on, a, on a mountainside. Okay, they didn't hang out there. Jews were forbidden to touch graves. What was the first location they, they came? To a tomb where they were, to, you know, a cemetery, basically. Jews were forbidden to uh, mutilate their bodies. What was the guy that they encountered first with? Doing all sorts of self-harm and cutting him. Okay, this was not where these guys hung out. This was on the other side. And to make matters even worse, this man to be proved to be too strong for both Jewish and pagan preachers. No one could help this guy. And he didn't just have one demon. <laughs> it tells us that he called himself legion, okay? History tells us that a Roman kind of legion was anything up to 6,000 soldiers. So thousands of demons at least were having a jaw in this guy's body. And they had seen demons before chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4 with Jesus. They had seen them leave instantly at a command. And here these demons are having a bit of a negotiation with Jesus. So it's very different, the scene, than what they've been accustomed to. But nonetheless, even though all of these odds are against these Jewish boys, with the storm incident now fresh in their memory, okay, Jesus continues his practical lesson, you know, in the school bus of his boat. He's showing them 
exactly who he is. And he's showing them that his kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, where he is Lord, okay, is powerful everywhere, even on the other side of the lake, even to the pagans, to the Gentiles, people like you and me. And it's not just powerful everywhere, it's powerful for everyone, even a man that nobody could help, Jesus is able to deliver. It's amazing. This man falls down on his knees in front of Jesus like a humble subject before a king. Now remember, it told us the context. This guy, nobody could subdue. He even broke chains off. The irony is that even though he broke chains off of him, he was always in spiritual bondage. And he runs and falls down in front of Jesus. He's the king. I love it when they talked to Jesus and said, please, could we go into the pigs? It says Jesus gave them permission. Satan's always on a leash, my friends, because God is in charge. Nothing that the enemy does, he does because he has authority over God. It's because God and his sovereign wisdom somehow allows it. I don't always understand it, but I know God is in charge. He's above. I can with confidence say that he allows it for a reason often. And even here, it says Jesus gave them permission. They don't do what they like. They do what Jesus likes. And so the demons shriek, don't torture me. Don't torture me. It's incredible. No doubt in these Jewish boys' minds that Jesus Christ has as much authority this side of the water, off of the stormy water, as he has and have in Galilee. And you know, let's just take a little bit of a diversion on the subject of demons, because some of you might sit here going, I don't really understand this thing. But spiritual bondage is real, friends. It's real. And in the West, you know, we try and... uh, uh, Make sense of it, you know, our modern ears and our modern minds kind of struggle with this, this reality of spiritual bondage. We're more comfortable with diagnosing these things with scientific terms, you know, and psychological terms. And in a sense, when we do that, we feel like we're more in control when we can name these, these, these forces behind evil and brokenness. But that doesn't actually solve the problem of evil. It doesn't solve the problem of evil. We christen in many ways. The, the brokenness. We give it new names, but we don't conquer them when we do that. We don't conquer them when we do that. David Garland says this, We have renamed the demons of the past, but we have not exorcised them. And there comes a time where the name of Jesus must be proclaimed. When actually maybe all sorts of counseling and medication does hit its ceiling, and the power of Jesus needs to break through to set people free from bondage. Where, where you know, maybe this is a picture of In our society, we try to shackle people, control them, keep them at bay. And it just doesn't work. Those chains, they can break, but they're still in spiritual bondage. We can't subdue them with our tricks and our, our trades. We need to call out on the name of Jesus. There might even be people here today, I want to say to you, that the name of Jesus is above every name. Anything that might torment you that might feel like it's got a grip on you and you just can't be free. Even now, in Jesus' name, I speak freedom over you. I believe in the power of the name of Jesus to set people free from spiritual bondage. Utter utter freedom can be yours. Total freedom can be yours. And so Jesus sets this man free and he sends the demons into the pigs. And so, yeah, it gathers a crowd, of course. People gather around. What is happening here? And they find this man liberated. He is sitting, it says. He's at peace. Sitting. He is dressed. In other words, Jesus restored dignity to this naked, crazy man roaming around in the tombs. There he's sitting. He's dressed. 
And it says in his, in his, his right mind. And it's fascinating that the crowd doesn't go, wow. They go, oh, they're afraid again. Petrified. Who is this man? Who is this man? The God-man Jesus. He's restored to his image bearing, like the, in the image of God. God, Jesus restores him to who he is created to be. And again, you think about that question that the disciples asked Jesus in the boat. Do you not care? And in this action, we see the caring heart, the loving heart of Jesus, that he would cross over a stormy sea just to liberate one man so that a whole region could be broken over, open. Because it tells us straight after that he gets in the boat and he goes back. That was his assignment. One man in his sight. This morning, Craig was reminding me of, of just that, that that's a picture of the, the 99 sheep that Jesus would leave to, to go find the one lost one. This is the caring Jesus at work here. And we know he cares because clearly here Jesus chooses people over pigs. Now let me just take a little bit of a detour here again. Maybe this is more relevant in the West where I'm living. You know, in Los Angeles, for example, dogs have more rights than people. And in, 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 Cali- I mean, in Canada where I'm living as well, you know, there's a huge sort of like, oh, but what about the animals? What about the animals? You know, and you might ask that question too, but don't ask that question and miss the point that the writer, the gospel of, of Mark here is trying to make. Because, you know, our question comes from this sort of Western secular, oh, you know, they also the dogs have feelings, the, the pigs have feelings. And, you know, the Bible tells us we should take care of our animals. Okay, I'm not against that. I'm not against being good stewards of God's beautiful creation, animals. But that's not what's going on here. Because in Jesus' context, the inherent value of the living creatures is not what the people are upset over. They're upset over the economic destruction that's happening over here. They care more about money than people. Okay, they were indifferent to the restoration of this one human because the cost was too high. This cost 2,000 pigs' lives. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. This man is worth more. This man is worth more than the pigs. Okay, the people chose the pigs over the person, but Jesus chooses the person over the pigs. Okay? Again, it's the love of Jesus that's coming out here in the story. Don't get sidetracked with like, but what about the piggies? Okay? Don't get sidetracked with that. And so, friends, we are faced today with a choice again. It's a time to choose. It was a time to choose for these locals, all right? They had to choose. Who is this Jesus? It says they were afraid too. Was, were they, was their fear going to turn into awe? Were they also fall down in front of Jesus? Or was their fear going to turn into, like, rejection? And it, unfortunately, it was rejection. Unfortunately, they said to him, please, could you leave? Please, could you leave, Jesus? We don't want any of, you, of, you, of this here. It's quite a sad outcome. Jesus cast the demons out, and now the locals cast Jesus out. They made the wrong choice. But luckily, there was a delivered man left behind. And he also had to make a choice. He wanted to leave town. He's like, great, I'm free. Jesus, can I come with you? It's fascinating. Jesus is saying, no, you can't. I want you to stay behind. I want you to remain and proclaim. And that's often our story. When we encounter Jesus, he wants us to stay. Stay in your workplace. Remain and proclaim. I love how Jesus said to him, go to your friends first. He just said, go tell your friends. And at the end of this passage, it tells us that people in the Decapolis, in other words, 10 cities, got to know who Jesus was because of this one man. Yeah, the locals rejected Jesus, but he's like, it's okay. I've got some, I've got some undercover workers over here. He's literally undercover. He used to be uncovered. Now he's undercover. I put clothes on him. He's going to proclaim Jesus. It's incredible, isn't it? 
And you know, a little side note here, Jesus in Galilee would often heal people and he says to them, shh, be quiet, don't tell people about me. But why is he telling this guy, this Gentile, just go bossies, just go tell everyone about me? Because there weren't a lot of Jews there and they wouldn't interpret the message of Jesus politically, which is what they would do in Galilee. In Galilee, the Jews were like, yeah, yeah, we're going to have someone who overthrow Caesar, you know. And so Jesus was saying to those in, in those regions, be quiet, not yet. But he was quite happy with the guys to let it loose in the Gentile region. And you and I are still called to let it loose, to tell our friends about Jesus. And then the disciples had to choose too. And so do you and I. We have to choose. What will you do with Jesus? You who are listening today, what will you do with Jesus? Jesus did more than just cross the other side of the sea for you and me. It tells us he crossed the great divide. He left his throne of heaven and he became human. He laid his glory aside. He became like you and me. He lived the perfect life that you and I should have lived. And then he died the death that you and I should have died. This possessed man lived among the tombs. But Jesus went into the tomb for you and me. He literally died for you and for me in our place. No one had the strength to subdue this demon-possessed man. You know, Jesus, who calmed the storm, we know, actually laid his strength and his authority down. In Matthew 19, when they arrested Jesus, Jesus said, Don't you know I can call a legion of angels? Put your sword down, Peter. I can call a legion if I must, but I'm not going to. He laid his strength and his glory aside to save you and me. The demons feared torture, and this man cut himself. But Jesus endured torture at the hands of the Romans. And he was cut and pierced for our transgressions. And he was crushed for our iniquities. And that Jesus stands before all of us today. And the question still is, what will you do with Jesus? Will you choose? Will you fall down on your knees in awe like the demon-possessed man who was delivered? Or will you reject him in fear like the townsmen did? Will you accept what he has done for you? Or will you reject it? You must choose today. Will you doubt God's goodness because you're in a storm? Or will you trust that he is wise and he is loving and he will get you through? Would you trust him that he might calm the storm? Or would you allow him to calm you in the storm? Either way, will you let him in? The choice is before you today. So can we close our eyes just for a moment? Bow our heads. I want to speak to two groups of people here. The first one is the group of people who you, you have not surrendered to Jesus. Maybe you've come to this crossroads before. You've been at this place where someone invited you and they've placed a choice before you and you've, you've tapped out, but you're here again. Maybe this is your first time. And the invitation is, what will you do with Jesus? He is God in the bod. He is God that became flesh, lived your life, died your death, and now he's offering you salvation, forgiveness, redemption, freedom. He wants to set you free. Any bondage, spiritual or even practical, uh, physical that you might be in, he is offering redemption. Will you accept him or will you reject him? If you want to become a Christian, a Christ follower, someone who says, Jesus is my Lord, 
He is my Savior. I need Him to pay for my sin because I can't pay for my sin myself. I need Him to save me because I can't save myself. If that's you today, and you're saying, I want to follow Jesus, that's my choice. Would you raise your hand? If you're here today, thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. They are choosing you today. Just in your heart, under your breath, why don't you just pray this prayer? Thank you. You can put your hands down. Jesus, you are my Lord. You are my King. I bow before you this morning. I crown you as King. I declare you my Savior. I am a sinner. I have done wrong. I have broken your heart. I have broken your laws. But you paid the price, the penalty for my sin. And I receive that gift by grace right now. And I am saved and I am forgiven. You are my Savior. And right now, fill me with your Spirit. Make me new. Transform me from the inside out. Redeem me. Set me free. In Jesus' name, amen. And the second group of people are those that have been in the boat with Jesus. You've walked with Jesus. You've heard his teachings. But you have found yourself also crying out to him in unbelief. Do you not care? And today, Jesus is not saying to you, oh, I can, I can understand. Jesus is saying, of course I care. I don't understand your doubt. Would you realign yourself with the truth of who I am? I am good and I am God. I've got you. If that's you, I'd love to pray with you as well. Let's close our eyes. We all find ourselves at stages in that place. But maybe specifically, particularly today, that is your story. Won't you raise your hand and I'd love to pray with you too. If that's you, thank you. I see your hand. Anyone else? Thank you. Thank you. Lord, you know the people whose hands have gone up. And you are, are sympathetic. You are empathetic. But you don't, you don't dial down who you are. You amplify it. You declare your kingship, your lordship, your majesty, your sovereignty. That is the, that is the truth that should trump the doubt in the room here today. Would you help them? Would you calm the storms if need be? And would you calm the disciples if need be? Either way, would you get credit and glory and may every hand and every person that is here today once again submit and surrender to you and in trust and in faith that you are a good God. You are a good God. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were here today and you made that first commitment where you said, I am going to follow Jesus, I'm, going to be, I'm becoming a Christian, won't you tell someone that invited you? Won't you go connect with someone at the back? I think there's a desk. You know, speak to Craig and some of the connect group leaders. Is that what you call them here? Please do not walk out of here uh, without telling someone, I met him. I met Jesus. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. It's been so wonderful being with you guys.